0: So a couple of weeks ago, we started our series on thriving, looking at Psalm 1, and that is a, the whole thing is the picture of a tree planted by streams of living water. It's not withering, it's fruitful, it's, not, it's thriving, it's flourishing, it's prospering, and it's a brilliant metaphor for life, the life that God wants us to live, a life that is connected with him and is thriving as a result. Not conforming, as those first few verses said, to the ways of the world but actually standing against them and seeing fruitfulness through our lives, delighting in God's words, delighting in God's ways. And uh, interestingly, um, just that very week, there was an article in the the papers, you may have seen it, headed, um, how was it headed? Religious or spiritual beliefs can help you thrive, say scientists. And uh, there's been some research done down in Portsmouth uh, by a doctor down there, um, just seeing how important spiritual life was actually to those people who thrive in life and uh, how much that helps. But uh, this morning, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah uh, speaks of what that transforming work of God looks like, changing things from what was to what could be, Um, primarily through his chosen servant, who would be Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the Christ, but also through his people. Um, And uh, and he, he describes us like a tree again. He uses this metaphor of a tree and says that we are like oaks of righteousness this time planted for the display of his splendor, something that will shine God out uh, to people. Not just thriving for ourselves, but planted so that we can make a difference for others as well. Verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. And uh, we've seen some vivid pictures of devastation on our televisions recently, with uh, the hurricanes across the Caribbean, with uh, the towns and cities uh, across Syria and Iraq, and we see very, very vivid images of what devastation looks like. But it's not just physical, it's spiritual uh, as well. And we also saw how in Jeremiah, um, uh, in 29 verse 7, the Old Testament prophet writes to the exiles in Babylon. And he says, seek and pray for the prosperity and peace of your city. Because if, if they prosper, you will prosper too. Um, as, uh, as God's shalom comes, God's salvation, wholeness and well-being comes to the people so it comes to all of us and uh, we read in the book of Daniel um, how Daniel and his friends who are part of that very exile decide they're not going to conform to the culture of the day but they're going to change it from within they're going to bring transformation from within as they trust God and live out their life uh, courageously uh, through that and begin to see God work in remarkable ways and that's a great encouragement to us uh, the book of Daniel but in Isaiah 61, uh, we see some rewords um, rebuild, uh, restore, uh, renew. And rewords are all the way through the Bible, and they clarify the Bible's position towards evil and the brokenness that we see all around us. You know Even if we don't necessarily believe in God, we look at our world and we say, "Surely there is something wrong. Something's gone wrong somewhere in our world. But the rewords are to do with returning something to its original intended state. Okay? Uh, it might be a person, it may be a relationship, it might be a project, it might be the environment. And, uh, and the Bible, the, the, you know, the early books, the pages of Genesis, uh, the book of beginnings, tell us that the original intended state was one that was good. This world was designed to be good. It went wrong, but the rewords say it can be redone, it can be returned back. To what was originally intended by God, and uh, throughout the New Testament, there are many key rewords. Um, we read of, of words like um, reconcile, um, which is about that relationship with God being made right through what Jesus has done. We read about redeem, redemption, which means you know paying the ransom to set something free, um, and He describes what Jesus has done, uh, paying for the sins of the world to set us free. We read of resurrection. You know, God the Father raises Jesus Christ from the dead. He goes through death and defeats it and comes out the other side. You know, there's proven life beyond uh, in Christ, as we've sung about this morning. But these are words that are not just there to make us feel good about what's up ahead and to make us think, oh, well, we're we're okay, you know, we're safe. Um, But actually, they're words that describe the roles that we have as a church and as people. So, Paul goes on and he says, We're to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Not only are we reconciled, but we're to live as ambassadors of reconciliation, bringing people into that relationship and restoring relationships as people learn to forgive one another. And um, We're to help people find freedom um, through, through life. You know, the truth will set you free, and we're to be part of that. We're to be people who live as resurrected people. The old me has died, okay, is dead and buried through baptism and, and all of that. And the new me is alive. And I'm to live as the new me, allowing Jesus to live his life through me uh, um, because no no longer the old one lives. You know, we are changed fundamentally. We're given Christ's righteousness. We're restored. We're brought from death to life. We're given uh, whole new lives, uh, renewed and being changed every day. And uh, not only are we saved from something um, for ourselves, but we are saved for something. We're saved to make a difference in this world, we're to live out that resurrection life because it is being changed. God is changing things, and we are to be part of that, helping return things to their original intended state. And so, the rewords remind us that God's original state was in, t- in fact good. In fact, it was very good. Uh, Leslie Ubigin says this. He says, "Our fallen world, sorry, our world is fallen, but redeemed." And we are to be agents of restoration. Separation and distance from it uh, is is like a false indicator of Christian faith. People who separate themselves from everything don't engage at all. We're actually to be up close and engage with the world in which we find ourselves in to make a difference. And the first pages of Genesis, again, just remind us that human beings are to bring glory to God by living for the good of the world. But it's very easy to have good intentions and get it badly wrong. You know, you can harm things by trying to be good. And so we have to have a deep understanding um, as well as uh, engage with things. So we need to think clearly about the world in which we live in, the place that you find yourself in, and how do you engage with that in your workplace, in your community, with the challenges that you face and people around you face, and how do we engage uh, with that. You know, there are big questions we might ask ourselves, like, you know, can we take the brokenness of this world seriously and still be hopeful, or do we just get completely overwhelmed by what seems to be happening? You know, can it be more than a feeling, or can we actually live in a way that makes a meaningful difference in people's lives? Uh, In 19, sorry, in 1736, Benjamin Franklin started the first fire brigade ever. Okay, it was a volunteer fire brigade. Right? It's become quite popular, having fire brigades around, it's quite a useful thing to have, you would think. And uh, because of that, it was really the first kind of charity, if you like. So we today have millions of non-profit organizations that are based around that idea of getting some local people around to solve some local problems that face, uh, face people locally uh, in the community. And that's exactly what he did. You know, we we live in a society that's very quick to to blame the government or the council for all the problems, um, and uh, and we want them to fix everything. Um, But actually, there are people around who say, actually, no, let's make a difference. As Christians, let's not just be part of the problem, but let's be part of the solution um, for how our world works. Uh, Three years ago, uh, many of you would be very familiar with the Ebola outbreak, um, that horrible disease that started spreading around and, you know, Could go everywhere, pandemically, with transport and stuff today. And yet, when you read many of the stories, it was many of the people that were stepping into the breach there were Christians, not by no means all people, but a number of people stepping into those dangerous situations, even picking up the disease themselves, some of them dying, were people of faith, people of Christian faith. And throughout history, you know, there are instances of Christians who, instead of running away uh, from the misery of others, have run towards. Uh, those challenging situations. I read uh, between A.D. 250 and 270, there was a terrible plague called the Plague of Cyprian, named after the guy who wrote about it. And it devastated the Roman Empire. And it coincided with uh, an empire-wide persecution of the Christians under Emperor Decius. In fact, he blamed the Christians for the plague. But there were a couple of things that undermined that claim. The first is the Christians were dying just like everyone else. And secondly, the Christians were helping the people who were suffering from it, including their pagan neighbours. Unlike everyone else, they were making a difference in that. Again, in the first century AD, Ephesus uh, was a pagan town, and it was dominated by the temple of Artemis, and uh, one of the well, he's one of the ancient Greek gods. And uh, the the worship of him involved having this fire, this temple, this uh, altar of fire, lots of hot coals in it. Um, to worship the false idol but fire is obviously very useful for the locals so it's you know for cooking for keeping warm for cleaning all sorts of reasons and if a home ran out of fire if their fire went out then they would have to go to the temple to get the hot coals from the the altar and uh, there was a, you know, the priests of the temple would charge them, not surprisingly, and they would, uh, they would teach that if they didn't get them from there, then something terrible would happen to them, you know, because uh, you know, they needed to appease the gods, pay the temple tax, take the fire from there. And so the fire keepers there were equivalent really to the gas and electricity companies, all rolled into one with the original dual fuel tariff uh, in there. But they had a monopoly on it. And, but the archaeologists have discovered something, that the Christians living in Ephesus lived differently. The Christians used to see, spot a home that had run out of fire, and they would take their own coals in their own fireballs round to these homes. And uh, it made a very powerful statement, even though it was a very simple thing to do. Firstly, it provided life-saving fire for people who possibly were in poverty and couldn't afford to go to the temple and pay uh, the tax or the, the, the offering, whatever. <laughs> It deprived the pagan temple of a, a kind of important source of income. But thirdly, it said to the world around that Christians in Ephesus were not afraid of the pagan gods. Okay, a very simple thing that made a big difference. And the question comes to every generation what might it mean to be a fire bearer? What does it mean in our communities to make that kind of difference? Not conforming, but transforming through a different way of living. And as far as we know, those first century Christians didn't pick it and placard, you know, go with a, a demonstration outside the temple. As far as we know, they didn't, you know, get a law passed in their favor. But through that simple act of kindness and faith, you know, eventually they begin to see the Greek temple system collapse and they see the rise of Christianity uh, through those centuries. Here's some questions that I came across um, that I think are really helpful as we think through these sort of things in our own context. The first question is, what is good in our culture that we can uh, promote, that we can protect, and that we can celebrate? You know, Because we believe that God uh, has created this world, uh, in his own words, good. And even after the fall, and even because of sin coming in, there is still good things in our world that remains, that we can promote and uh, protect and celebrate. I think I've put these in Outlook, so in the questions, but they are in there somewhere. The second question is, what is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute? You know, we're created to be creative. So when something good's missing at some time or in some place in, in, a, in our generation, you know, let's find ways to offer it to the world, because then God is glorified and the world is helped. What is missing in our culture that we can contribute creatively to? Thirdly, what is evil in our culture that we can stop? Because we know that God hates evil. And throughout history, you know, courageous Christians have stood up and worked to stop things that destroy people's lives or have deceived people. And, you know, what is evil that we can stop? And then fourthly, what is broken in our culture that we can restore? Because ultimately, we reflect the gospel far more clearly when something is restored to its original intention, when something that is damaged by sin is restored to what it was intended for, then we see that happen. So what is good? You know, what is missing? What is evil? What is, what is broken? Great questions. They'll keep you busy for the rest of your life, probably, uh, working that out. And then how can we engage with those uh, in different ways? And actually, the way we engage those is incredibly diverse. So I'm going to come up with a whole range of things here. And some of you go, I don't relate to that. But what I'm trying to point out is there's no no-go areas for God. Okay, Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your interests are, whatever you're involved with, then you can make a difference. That's, that's the point I want to make here. So for example, the world needs Christian entrepreneurs. You know, I know a guy called Ben Cooley. He works uh, for Hope for Justice. And he gathered together a number of really mainly kind of ex-police officers and said, I want to make a difference against uh, trafficking and modern-day slavery. They set up a project in Birmingham and other cities across the UK, um, trying to deal with those issues. You know, we have our very own uh, Richard Beard, uh, who uh, heads up Jericho, a uh, project in Balsall Heath, you know, a social enterprise that is trying to help long-term unemployed people with uh, catering projects and building projects and printing projects and so on. You know, we, we might think of those who have set up um, Christian pregnancy uh, advice centers uh, across the country. Um, people offering support uh, for, for women and information, creative options, uh, including adoption and all sorts of things. Recovery programs to women um, who are facing unplanned pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, have even been through abortion themselves and they, they they get alongside them you know still waters in King Seath uh, comes to mind um, you know people who've decided actually this is not about protesting this is actually about getting alongside real people and helping them make real decisions uh, and face the challenges that they have and the choices that they might make and um, on a more creative front you know I came across that as a pro-life organization in the US and uh, you know across there that you know the the placards and the protesting is, is kind of is all there all the time. And they decided, actually, well, I'm not su- we're not sure that's the way to approach this. You know, we are pro-life, and we want to protect the unborn. So what they did was they decided to raise enough money for an ultrasound machine and a bus, and to pay and to train some people who are able to operate that uh, professionally and all the rest of it, so that women coming along could get a photo, an ultrasound photo of their, of their pregnancy. And, and they say that something like 90% of women seriously reconsider their choices when they've seen a picture of their unborn child. Okay, and I talk about it because of the creativity of thinking, about how can we approach something um, that people are passionate about in that. Uh, another huge area, and many of you will be aware of this and involved in this, is education. Um, here's, a, here's a quote from Albert Einstein um, that I came across. Is this it? Yeah. Education is what remains after one has forgotten what one has learned at school. Okay, you can agree with that, you can disagree with that, but it's thought provoking, definitely. Uh, T.S. Eliot uh, wrote a book about the aims of education. And he says this he says, if you come across a machine, a mysterious machine that you've never seen before, you ask two questions of it What is it for? Yeah, and how does it work? Fairly obvious. And then he goes on, he says, If we want to define education, then eventually we're led to ask, What is man? Okay, if we want to define education, we say, what is man for? What are people for? Why are we here? Um, because the answer to that question will determine your underlying philosophy or theology that is then taught. You know, What are we here for affects what we do with education. So in an extreme case, to get our head around this, we might imagine something like Isis okay who have an education program and we've we've seen this haven't we where they're training children to be terrorists in our eyes or in their eyes to to fight against the unbelievers of the world okay but their philosophy affects that you know in korea north korea you might imagine an education system that equips the children to be absolutely loyal to the state because that's what they see as the reason for them being there and therefore the education affects that. But what about our culture? Um, because any culture that becomes detached from its real purpose won't be able to establish a solid vision for educational initiatives. So on one end of the socioeconomic scale, you know, we have them where there's high unemployment perhaps, where there's a lot of family breakdown, where there's a lot of poverty. You know, People struggling to make ends meet can have real difficulty in articulating to themselves as well as to the kids, uh, uh, an inspiring and uh, compelling vision for learning and knowing. At the other extreme of the socio-economic scale, there is very often the education that is too often correlated with, well, it's all about the accumulation of wealth. It's all about material things and about a comfortable retirement, and therefore, that's what education is about. And, and what is it really about is a, a good question to ask ourselves. You know, defining that question in your own head, of what we're here for, will affect how we put together coherent education. Um, Interestingly, I've discovered just in the last few weeks where the word university comes from. It comes from two words, unity and diversity, pushed together. And it is really there, originally, for bringing unity and understanding from the diversity of human experiences. But probably universities haven't got a clue why they're called universities and, and what it's all about. I don't know. Okay, but is school just a random set of subjects for students? Or do they understand how it all fits together and the sense of purpose and meaning that is there? Because as Christians, we know that as we get to know about God's world, we actually know something about God himself. And it's a very fruitful kind of thing. We also know that it's not just about the technical, it's about the moral. You can understand how something works, but if you don't understand the morality framework and the ethics of that, you know we know that some incredibly well-educated people in this world have been some of the worst people on the planet. So what is it really about? Um, I'm not an educationalist, so I leave you with that question. But it is a huge sector of bringing transformation uh, to our world. And we pray for every single one of you that's engaged in that in, in any single way. Another big area uh, where we can make a difference, you know, is that those people that I would call with this heroic perseverance, you know, Christians who persevere in faith despite your suffering, or despite disability, or a parent with a severely disabled child, or someone overcoming the pressure to abort a Down syndrome child, and dozens of others potentially, you know, prenatally diagnosed conditions, not conforming but transforming. You know, people whose lives are turned upside down by, you know, family tragedy. You know, we applaud you um, and we encourage you to keep going in the faith. The whole of heaven, the crowd of witnesses looks down and looks down with great love and support for you and applauds you in what you are doing and the challenges that you face. And the world looks on and it sees another kingdom. It sees another love. It sees another way of living. Chuck Colson, one of uh, President Nixon's henchmen, um, some of you will know of the, the Watergate scandal in the US, uh, back a day now, but, uh, and he became a Christian when he was in prison following that. He was in prison for seven months and went on to actually form the, the Prison Ministry Fellowship. Um, but he said this about his autistic grandson, Max. I can tell you this, this former Nixon hatchet man has learned more about love from Max than anyone else. Many ways in which we can transform our world by not conforming. Another completely different area, and it's not my area at all, but the arts. So I, the Christian guy uh, works in the highly secular world of comedy. We, you know, we like our stand-up comedians, some of us anyway. And he asked himself, can you be redemptive and restorative in this situation? And he really wrestled with that question, because he said it's really hard when the secular mentality might not want your jokes... And the religious mentality doesn't really want them either. It's like, how how do you do this? Anyway, he decided, you know, he says this, he says, when people are comfortable with dark comedy that has coarse language and gratuitous sexual references, and that's what people want, it's very difficult to pull people back into the light. And we can relate to that. But rather than flee it, he decided to engage with it and took up the challenge. And he says, the people who got it first were the other comedians. Because he said they knew how difficult it was to make people laugh without being crude. And he said that started up some conversations. One guy eventually became a Christian, one of the other comedians, comics on the, on the circuit. And he said, I don't think it was what I said about God that impressed him, as much as my commitment to God that impressed him. Not conforming, but transforming. Another guy called Carl, uh, in the upper management of a very large media company, and uh, the company does a lot of good, um, does a lot of music and video, uh, very large across the world. Um, but he said a lot, of the, a lot of the films were quite violent and fed a brutality and a bitterness that, that he was quite uncomfortable with. So he waited patiently, he prayed about an opportunity to bring some sort of Christian influence to it. And eventually one opened up for him to just to question graciously but firmly the company's policies regarding media content. First of all, he got a rebuff. From, from everyone, basically saying, well, it's, it's the right of free expression of, of the artist to do what, what they want. And he said, I could have just given up at that point. He said, but I, I pushed on and I sent a memo to the chairman and just said, while each artist has the right to produce what they want, including vile content, he says, the company doesn't, isn't bound to distribute it. And he said, mysteriously, so I never got a reply, but mysteriously, over the next few months, he said, the percentage of violent content accepted by the media division. Uh, dropped significantly. Not conforming, but graciously transforming. There's a high-end uh, artist in, uh, in the New York, and he was part of 9-11. He was in the rubble in the basement of 9-11. And he came out of that and started to paint uh, some quite, um, in his view, quite sort of Christian paintings. Um, and a result of that, he, he exhibits in high-end galleries in New York. And uh, he was asked, because of it, about the meaning of his paintings. And then he was asked about the meaning of his life and uh, you know how could he remain faithful to his faith despite the rubble and all that he's been through. One gallery owner said this, while profoundly Christian works are usually shunned in our circles, here these pieces resonate with outsiders. He is a profound believer and I am totally secular, but he's like a professor to me. His paintings allow for sceptics like me to do one thing that secularism has labelled a sign of weakness, to hope. And uh, another art critic said this, he said, the idea of forging a new kind of art, as he called it, about hope, healing, redemption, refuge, while maintaining visual sophistication and intellectual integrity, he says, is a growing movement. It's transforming, it's bringing a different message into the world. So what is good in our culture that we can promote, we can protect we can celebrate what is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute to what is evil in our culture that we can find gracious ways and uh, uh, to stop what is broken in our culture that can we can restore because as i say there is no sector of society that is no goal for god okay nothing there god has got a plan for you he's got a plan for you to be significant in this world He's got a plan for you to make a difference in some way, to renew something, to restore something, to rebuild something in this world that is broken. And Jesus said in his Great Commission, as you go, okay, or wherever you go, okay, whoever you are, wherever you go, the places that you go to through the week, the spaces that you find yourselves in, the relationships that you have and will have even this week, the needs of those people and of those places, and asking God, you know, how can I join your work? in what you want to do here. The, prote- the, the Protestant reformers uh, understood vocation not just as occupation, but as anywhere and everywhere that we go. Okay, the different situations and the different relationships, every single bit of it ordained by God, not chance. So on one hand, we ask the question, what skills, what gifts, what abilities do I have? What do I love doing? You know, what makes me come alive? Like... Um, Eric Liddell, you know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, what's that bit of me? Um, on the other hand, what are the, the specific brokenness of our culture? You know, what are the particular evils of our, of our world? That, what are the things that break my heart, that break your heart? You know, what are the trends in culture that lead people away from faith? And we know we can't do it all, you know, but if we take our places and if we take our gifts and our abilities and we take Our cultural brokenness and we look at where these intersect then very often that is where we find God's voice into our lives there are many needs in our world there are many voices in the world but very often it's that intersection where we find God's voice Frederick Bruckner puts it like this he says usually it's the kind of work that a you most need to do and b the world most needs you to do and he says uh, you know if you get a kick out of your work you presumably met requirement a but uh, if your work is designing cigarette ads, chances are you've missed requirement B. However, he said, on the other hand, if you're working, say, as a doctor in a leper colony, you've probably met requirement B. But if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, you've probably missed requirement A. And it's possible you're not doing a great job for the people either. But the place God calls you to is a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And uh, that's a great question to be asking ourselves as we continue to go through life, as we seek to be living lives that thrive. But I think the secret is always to start small. You know, we can save every problem in the world, but actually we just start where we are. The real question is not whether, in fact, we can change the world, but is how we will respond to the next opportunity. You know, will we do whatever it is, will we do it well? Someone else said that if you want to change the world, start by cleaning your room. You know, start small. I came across this, you know, uh, there's a um, local neighbourhood thing. Next door, King's Heath, this one. Somebody just posted this. Hello, I'm James, and with my small group of helpers, I've been doing work for people in my neighbourhood that they need help with or can't find the time to do themselves. If you have any unfinished jobs or projects, even an overgrown garden, we can help with a group of up to five college students who have been doing this for two months. We can help and make it happen. I thought, oh, great, you know, it's very easy, isn't it, to make a difference in your world if you want to. And, uh, yeah. Mark Twain, I'll finish with this, said this, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the ones you did. So throw off the ball lines. Sail away from the safe harbour. Catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover. You know, if those first century Christians hadn't stepped out in faith and trusted God despite hardship and opposition, we wouldn't be here today. Okay, and What is God calling you? What does God call us to be doing that steps out? To be planted by God, to trust in him, and to bring um, as an oak of righteousness something that re-somethings someone else in life. Let's pray together. Revelation 21 verse 5, it says, Jesus says this, God says this, you are making all things new. You are making all things new. You've paid the price to redeem this broken, fallen world. So, Lord, we just come before you this morning and say, Holy Spirit, will you gently reveal to me, to each one of us, what we're looking at in our world through the lens of the world's culture and not that of your kingdom? Help us see it with your eyes. Help us see where you are at work and where you call us. And will you give us the grace? To make the necessary changes to put that right. In Jesus' name. Amen.